Today I'm out at the National Defence University with TX Hammy. Would you like to kick start today by telling us a little bit about yourself, particularly what you did as a junior commander? Certainly. Um, I went to the Naval Academy because I wanted to be a Marine. I didn't know if I wanted to be a career Marine. I thought I'd stay as long as it was fun. So I had a four-year struggle with the Academy where they thought I was there for an education. I thought I was there for a commission. <laughs> we, I got out without the education but with a commission and then uh, went to to Quantico for TBS, all Marine officers do. I was lucky enough to uh, get selected for infantry, did uh, three years in Hawaii with 3rd Marine Regiments, two years in a rifle company. I had, uh, <laughs> when I reported in, the battalion XO looked at me and he said, I'm going to give you the worst platoon in the battalion. <laughs> and he paused and he thought about it for a while. I says, no, I'm not going to do that. This is the worst platoon in the Marine Corps. <laughs> And so that was my introduction to the infantry. What, what really surprised me was that as bad as they were, and this was a period in the mid-'70s where we kind of had the dregs of society, you could still appeal to the pride as Marines. We still got things done. So two years with different platoons, two different rifle platoons, a weapons platoon, then a rifle company XO. Then as a regimental S2 for a year, intelligence officer uh, with a primary or with an alternate duty of writing and developing a manual war game for the regiment to train battalion staffs all the way down to company. And I found that both a wonderful opportunity because I had to understand everything the regiment did from the platoon level to the regimental level so I could simulate it. And it gave me as a, as a first lieutenant carte blanche to go in and talk to the majors, lieutenant colonels, and even the regimental commander and say, what is it we're trying to achieve here? Then I went to Okinawa and I should have gone to a support unit, but the division commander wanted a war game for the division. Yep. So I went to Division G3 and did the war game for the division. Uh, that gave me an opportunity to pick up a rifle company. Uh, so I was fairly junior. I just made captain when I got my first rifle company. Uh, Okinawa used to be one-year tours. So I had the odd experience of I had a first sergeant who was superb. I had no staff non-commissioned officers. Out of 182 Marines, I had three sergeants. None had been in the infantry before. I had nine corporals, and everybody else was last corporal below. So it really was a matter of the blind leading the blind. I had three lieutenants. The most senior had three months out of the basic school. So uh, it's kind of like having a whole box full of puppies. <laughs> They're all eager. They all want to do good, but there's absolutely no adult leadership going on here. Uh, we went out and we did a joint exercise with the Thai Marine Corps and then trained with the Philippine Marines and then came back. Then I did three years on recruiting duty. Um, that was an extraordinarily tough tour recruiting in the early 80s. We were shifting from the low quality to high quality. Um, it was a troubled station. The commanding officer had uh, murdered his wife and killed himself. The recruiter, the XO, was resigning under investigation, and the sergeant major had been fired. And the recruiter instructor was a drunk. So other than that, we were in pretty good shape. Oh, and yes. they, they had fired the whole logistics section for fraud the week before we got there. So the amazing thing again was if you gave, if you motivated individual Marines and gave them the tools and told them what you wanted but not necessarily how to do it, you gave them a lot of guidance, Yes, um, they managed to perform. It came from being one of the worst stations in the nation to one of the best. Uh, came out of there and went to Infantry Officer Advanced Course, the U.S. Army Course. I wanted to see how another service did it. Also a shorter course in the Marine Corps. Then reported to Camp Pendleton, uh, California, where I did two years as a weapons company commander, and our weapons company at the battalion is 81 mortars, dragons, 50 caliber machine guns, uh, and the sniper platoon, uh, scout snipers. Uh, so that was very, very different. You were also the battalion fire support coordinator, so you're responsible for all live fire coordination, uh, and were a special staff officer. 
And functionally, if the three was gone, you were generally the senior person left in the three, so you became three, two. So you're both a company commander and a three at times in the field. Um, after two years of that, I went to be a year as a regimental logistics officer, which was extraordinarily useful later in life. Um, because you not only ran regimental logistics, you were also the base logistics officer. So you had the camp, you had the, the barracks, the mess halls, the everything from garbage to sewage, to everything was yours, plus the, the physical aspect of supporting the regiment in the field. And Marine regimental uh, logistics staffs are very small. There were four officers and four enlisted. We had to run all those facilities with those people. So that was, uh, again, uh, mission orders by necessity. Not because you necessarily don't want to supervise a guy, because you have no time to, so you figure out a way to be able to check in on who's doing well and who isn't. But again, uh, what you want him to do and why you want him to do it, but not how, let him figure that out, and it worked quite well. Uh, <clears throat> then I went off um, Mershon Center for a year uh, academic, studying insurgency in 1986 to 87. I then did three years seconded to the CIA where I trained insurgents in various parts of the world. That was particularly interesting because you got to look at it from their point of view and see that while they respect technology, it did not intimidate them at all. They just figured out a way around it. They were just very, very practical people. Particularly because usually by the time we were advising a group, you got past the beginners and all the stupid and unlucky were dead, and you were dealing with the Darwinian selected team. Uh, when I left there, I went to Command and Staff College for the Marine Corps. Then to Okinawa, where I commanded, it was called an a intelligence battalion. We were in, in phase of moving it to an intelligence or intelligence company, and we were changing it to intelligence battalion. Lieutenant Colonel Command, I was lucky enough to get it as a major, transitioned the flag to that of a battalion command. Left there and went to 1st Marine Division, where I spent a year as the uh, plans officer for the division. And then during that period, we went to Somalia, so I was plans officer for Marine mm -hmm. Forces Somalia. Uh, which was probably the first time I really worked with the Australians much because you had to okay, yes, that's right. there. Uh, then after that, I went to Canadian National Defense College. Again, I said, uh, I've seen the American way of doing it. I'd like to see how somebody yes. else does it, but preferably where I speak the language very yes. well. I'm pretty good at Canadian. Uh, <laughs> so I'm learning how to speak American too. <laughs> then back to 1st Marine Division for a year as a Division G3 operations, followed by two years with an infantry battalion. Uh, when I left the infantry battalion, I went became the division intelligence officer. Then two years as the fleet marine officer for third fleet, and actually I was the war plans officer for fleet as we developed. Right, that's still classified. Yeah. <laughs> war plans for for an unnamed country on a crash basis uh, for, for fleet and uh, FMF, so all the main yes. forces. From there, I went to and was the plans officer for one MEF. We were the war plans people for both Korea and the Middle East, so it was a very interesting job in terms of war planning. Uh, left there and became commanding officer of the Chemical Biological Incident Response Force about two months before 9-11. So we were the team that went up and helped clean up on Capitol Hill. We had to sample the offices all over the house side and then tear apart Senator Dashiell's office and cart it out in trash cans. Um, finished that up and then did my final two years here at NDU as a senior military fellow and decided this is what I wanted to do for life. Went off and got my PhD and came back. That is an incredibly diverse <laughs> career that you've just outlined there. I think the, the interesting thing is early on I knew I wasn't going to be a general. So I said I won't do a headquarters and Marine Corps tour and I won't do a joint tour. 
and that freed up a whole bunch more time for operating forces. So in all that time, I did two non-FMF tours. I did the recruiting tour and the CIA tour, which is really an operational tour. You're yes. always out training people and working with weapons and tactics techniques. Um, so that was actually more fun for me. I never had to do the grind of a, a tour across the river with the horrible paperwork. Yes. <laughs> she gives you a great perspective being a practitioner and then also contributing to the scholarly space. Bring that perspective there to the people that obviously read your work. And certainly I know from our first conversation, I greatly uh, admired all of the stories that you were telling. So the first question that I ask everyone is, what's your prediction of what future war or conflict actually looks like? Well, the one thing I know is that uh, about being a futurist is we're usually wrong. Yes. <laughs> Almost always wrong. So don't bet on anything they say unless they do a broad spectrum bet. And this is what, it's like a portfolio. If you're investing, you don't say, I bet it's all going to be stocks, or I bet it's going to be tech stocks, or I bet it's going to be bonds. You invest across the spectrum. And unfortunately, we have to do the same thing in defense because we can't predict. So we have to look at it. We say, you've got to have the possibility of a high-end conflict with China, unlikely because of the uh, intersection of the economies, but the French, Brits, and Germans were totally integrated and, and never should have fought World War I, but did. Mm. So never underestimate uh, the human capacity for stupidity in groups. Yes. So we have to be prepared for that. All the way down to the very low end, terror and things like that. Now, terror I see mostly as a police and maybe some special operations end of the spectrum. Some of the response and recovery are going to be military forces. Uh, not we usually think in terms of engineering, but not really because um, civilian engineering capacity vastly exceeds anything in the military. Mm -hmm. When 9-11, the towers collapsed, uh, one of the emergency managers in New York went on TV and said, I need dump trucks. Well, while the U Pentagon went into a planning process to see which reserve units would be activated and how many days it would take, by the end of the day, they had dump trucks lined up from the 9-11 site all the way up the West Side Highway to the George Washington Bridge, which is like 10 or 11 miles across yeah. the bridge and into New Jersey. And finally, they had to just say, stop, please, no more dump trucks. Um, so that type of response will be there. But you've got to look for the niches. Uh, civilians don't do protected response. If it's a hazardous material area, they've got very, very limited numbers of people. But there's a very brief period where you can do good recovery and, and rescue work. So there's some of that we have to do. There will be certain things like that you need to understand what your role is. Uh, uh, Australia has, and I can't remember the name of the regiment, but essentially it's a, a response regiment for, for support civil authority. Um, that's, we also trained with them all. I needed a translator for one of your guys. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> we did. We actually could not understand. Broad <laughs> Aussie accents aren't the best sometimes. Um, so... Then in the middle is the meat of where most ground forces will be. And this will be from a low-level insurgency up through some kind of a mid-level contact contra, uh, conflict, uh, North Korea, and Iran, something like that. So we've got to figure out how we're going to fight in there and how we stay ready in there. Now, for the junior officer, there's a somewhat different requirement for the senior officer. The senior officer today has to be thinking about the fact we may be entering a period where defense dominates offense again. Mm. I think World War I, where defensive weapons dominated. When that happens, then you've got to rethink how you're going to do it. The whole Alan and the attack will get through is a bad idea. So as we begin to really move into directed energy weapons and cheap drones, I mean, we've got college frat houses now have drones. They have air forces. Probably a bad idea, but some yep. things are going to go wrong <laughs> yeah, there. That's right. I think so. <laughs> um, but there are also people making those little robot car drones. Uh, if you add an EFP to that, you've got a mobile vehicle killer. Mm. 
if you add an EFP to a quadcopter or a drone, you've got a tank killer because yes. it kills from above. Uh, with use of some of the new ones with cell phones, you've got autonomous tank killers. They don't need a GPS signal. They're flying based on a memorized pattern that you can program into them. And they just fly along and look for a heavy mass of metal and they shoot at it. Mm. Um, that's going to be interesting. So that's the senior officers as they restructure the force. The good news for junior officers is you still just have to get the basics right. You've got to shoot, move, and communicate. Communicate being by far the most important, and that's getting to know your troops in a way that you can function together. And I uh, very rapidly in combat, your combat vessel, very, very quickly you learn because you're there together mm-hmm. and you're learning rapidly. But in peacetime, you only get to do these exercises periodically, and the realism isn't there, and so sometimes it's hard to get them out. So I would do a number of things. One, I would uh, insist on tactical decision games daily. And that, but not the one where, I don't know if we had this conversation last time, where uh, in a normal tactical decision game, you give the problem, everybody writes down their answer, somebody's picked to answer, he answers, and then you beat the crap out of him for 20 minutes on what a stupid guy he is. And all he learns is never to speak up again. If instead you say, okay, got it. Now, before you give the answer, you have to tell me what's commander's intent to up, what do you see your mission is based on commander's intent, what are your strengths and weaknesses? What are the enemy's strengths and weaknesses? How are you going to use your strengths against his weaknesses to achieve intent? Mm. In fact, is your mission wrong? Is this intent, now as we portray the problem, is maybe the order, the mission you've been given, incorrect? Because remember, the Germans did, did that process for a long time, where in order to succeed in achieving intent, you had to disobey orders. Interesting concept, and I think we should make it part of our own. To make yes. people comfortable with the idea, I want you thinking, I don't want you just obeying. Which plays into mission command. Yes, that's absolutely essential part of mission command. But what really plays into mission command is as they repeat this to you, and you as the platoon leader or company commander have to play too, you have to give your outline so they can understand how you're thinking. As you do this time after time, you begin to understand how they think. Because the problem with just tactical, you're going, boy, that guy's a bonehead on tactics. Because he sees the battlefield differently than you did. You don't see the same picture when you describe it in short paragraph order. But as you begin to do this and you learn about each other, you really develop an understanding. I did this as a battalion commander. As a company commander, I did it every week. All my officers had to come in and spend Thursday afternoon. And Thursday afternoon was for reading and TDGs. As a battalion commander, it was Friday afternoon with the officers and uh, everybody else could go home. Friday afternoon was readings, TDGs, terrain walks, etc. But it was always about this talking, getting to know each other, getting to understand so that I understood which company commanders would do what in a crisis. I understood which lieutenants got it and which were kind of special needs children. And as much <laughs> as you like to think that everybody's going to be good, you're going to have something that's going to need some special attention. You better know that before the fight starts. Don't yes. lose a platoon and then figure out, geez, I should have paid more attention to that guy. So this is all part of that process, the tactical decision game, the walk. Like I mentioned last time, uh, urban is a real problem because yes. your urban facilities aren't as good as they should be. But if everybody puts on civilian clothes, and we're in Southern California, so we're lucky we're close to urban areas, we went to an area just north of San Clemente, um, which is very Mediterranean, odd streets going odd directions, steep hills, no nothing at right angles. And the first time I had them walk in like they were attacking it, and there were all kinds of surprises, mm-hmm. what looked good on the map or on a uh, uh, overhead image, Turned out to be really a bad idea. One company was attacking up a draw, and we found out at the top of the draw was a uh, automobile refinishing facility on the downhill side of that were massive tanks of flammable liquids. So you're attacking uphill into flammable liquids, probably not something you <laughs> want to do on a regular basis. 
um, and surprises like that. We then defended it, and I had several people who lived out there, so we got to get in their apartments and look at what the ground looked like from inside, found some of the tunnels from one apartment to another to show them how people would be moving out of sight, things like that. And then the third exercise was how are you going to control it? You've now taken it. How do you control it? We went down and did the San Diego airport. You always do airport seizure, and it's always some little airport in the middle of nowhere with two tin shacks that are the yeah. uh, headquarters. <clears throat> so one company sees and it's no big deal. But if you really look at most third world airports, capital airports, they're more the size of Mogadishu, mm. which is a battalion level objective at least. But you can't get that to people with these goofy little exercises you do. Mm. So everybody gets civilian clothes. The airports wouldn't let us inside the perimeter. So uh, we went to parking garages just outside and climbed up on top of parking garages and examined things. And we climbed up on top of uh, the interstate and looked down on it from the interstate. And then we walked into some buildings that were publicly open buildings, car rental agencies. You looked in and said, okay, this is kind of a pattern you're going to see. And you broke into teams of four or five, went out, scattered all over, talked about it, came back. And, of course, part of the process is at the end I always had a couple cases of beer. We sat down, we, we drew in the dirt, and we talked about what we'd done, what we thought about it, and why. Now, all this is part of mission orders. Essentially, you have to know how the other guy thinks. Otherwise, it's a pure theory. And so that's, that's what you've got to do. I think you do it regularly. I would also play war games with them, some kind of manual war games. Uh, your guys probably play some, uh, if they play any of the, the fantasy games where they actually spin out a story, sometimes yes. these guys are your best ones for setting scenarios for yes. you. We've reached the point where the PFCs wanted to write their own scenarios. Sometimes we're pretty bad, but that's where the NCO gets to sit down and talk with the PFC and say, okay, this is where we can make this better. And the point was we're going to get better at this. We're not going to criticize. We're going to figure out how to make it better. One of the things that I took away from the last discussion that we had is that I was reflecting on the way that I was taught to think and plan, and I was taught to think about how the enemy thinks, and I was taught to think about how my higher command thinks. I think it begins to get important about that company commander, as you describe, knowing how their junior commanders think, that if you know how the man on the ground or the woman on the ground is thinking, then you can actually particularly if the junior commander is in a remote location, maybe away from their chain of command, that you've got that trust in the system that you actually know. And you so also know who you should send to an isolated command. That's I had a right. couple of tenants that I knew they would never be very far from adult supervision <laughs> because I'd watched them enough and said, okay, just it's just not there. And it, yes. It's an incredibly challenging job to lead a platoon or a company. Yes. Not, most people are not intellectually suited for that, mm. or a lot of people aren't. Uh, so you do that. Now, one of the things on this mission, you have to set that from the day you come in. And people have different processes. Some people publish a 10-page letter on all the things you're going to do in your mm. command philosophy. I always thought, that's too complex. Yes. We're going to get to know each other over a period of time. So I only I had three things I wanted them to remember. And this is a pitch I gave from, I get all the officers together. And then each time an officer and NCO join the command, I talk to them about that. Um, the first thing is we're going to use mission orders. That means I tell you what and why, but not how. Why being the most important thing. You may decide that you have to go a different direction. For instance, there's the classic example of your mission is to move to this bridge and seize it in order to stop the 345th Regiment from crossing the river. Well, as you're moving to the bridge, your flank guard says, hey, we found a ford. We just had an engagement. Well, now your mission is not to seize the bridge. They're already crossing here. So you take the bulk of your force there, you send some kind of a, a light screen or a reconnaissance force to look at the bridge so you can warn the regimental commander or, or battalion commander, and you get there quickly and do the fight. Now, you have the authority to make that change in your room, but you've got to make sure he knows. Yeah. 
Mm. And that's radio, whatever, runner. You've just got to make sure they know you're not where you're, they think you're going to be. That's a case of where the why overrode the what. Yes. Because clearly you're trying to achieve why. Okay, if you accept that, you'll find that about 80% of the time, they'll figure out a better way to do it than you will, just because they're closer to the job. And 15% of the time, it'll be the same thing you would have done. Yes. And 5% of the time, it'll be a screw-up. Sometimes a truly impressive screw-up <laughs> of epic proportions. So that leads to point number two. You have to decide how you're going to deal with mistakes. Yeah. I have seen world-class ass chewings totally wasted. Watch a gunny just go up one side and down another with PFC. Gunny turns and storms away, and the PFC kind of goes like this because he doesn't know what he's being yelled at for. Mm-hmm. Or he may think he's being yelled at for offense A, when really the gunny's talking about B. Mm-hmm. So he's very careful not to do A again, but he does B again. This just makes the gunny even matter. Yes. So lack of communication. Uh, an alternative then approach is you walk up to him and say, okay, what happened? And one of three things will happen. He won't know anything happened. That tells you something, again, a special needs kid. <laughs> um, number two, he'll know what happened. And you'll say, okay, then how are you going to help me fix this? you got to make him part of the fix if possible. Sometimes they're just way beyond that. So you do the damage control and fix, and you sit down and talk about it. But you've got to make it a learning experience. There's no point for the You get all the pain with none of the payback if you don't make it a learning experience. The third thing is the guy will tell you about something you didn't know about. It's something that's been bugging him for a long time. Oh, my God, they finally caught me. And he'll blurt it out. You go, oh, well, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. So you can fix that one and the other one. You get a twofer. The yelling is never good. Um, particularly an officer, I don't think, should be yelling. It's mm-hmm. just, I mean, that's more of a British, uh, I don't know about Australian, there's more British traditional officers don't raise their voices. There's this whole language. Personality-based in yeah, Australia. In, uh, in the U.S. Army and sometimes the U.S. Marine Corps, that the shaven-headed guy who yells really loud yes. is impressive. I don't think he is. He just looks like an idiot. So if you use that approach and accept that, you'll get better results. Mm-hmm. But you're going to get a lot of mistakes. Yes. The key is the 80% they're doing better than you would has got to cover you for the 15% that the mm-hmm. screw-ups. And then the third thing is you got to have fun. And first of all, this is just some reenlistment pitch, but it isn't. It's about learning. All training is about learning and retention in the worst possible conditions when you're being shot at. Think about all the courses you've gone to throughout your life. If they were fun and engaging, that doesn't mean easy, but fun, you remember it. Yes. If they were boring or bland, whole semesters go by. You have no idea. In fact, you go back and look at your college transcripts and said. I took a course in that? <laughs> Calculus. <laughs> yeah. No idea what happened there. So if you do those three things and leave it at that, say we'll get to know each other over time, mm-hmm. and then make it a point. Uh, in the field, you're adamant that you have to walk your perimeter every night. In garrison, you have to walk your perimeter at least once a week. You've got to poke your head into every single shop. Now, particularly as you get more senior, uh, you have major company commanders, so that's a little intimidating to a, to a young kid, or lieutenant colonel battalion commander, the first five, six, seven times you show up, nobody will say anything. But as you're there every week and begin to get used to you, and if you're visiting the motor pool, you crawl under the vehicle with the guy and see what they're doing. This also gives them an opportunity. They can say things that they want you to know and pretend they didn't know you were there. They'll make jokes. They'll sing songs. They're all information. And the single biggest problem you'll have as a company commander, more so as a battalion and brigade commander, is finding out what the hell the problems are uh, because nobody wants to bring bad news. Yes. So just get out and circulate. Well, that's great advice about getting to know what the problems are through getting to know your people. Yeah. The last time we spoke, you told some great stories about complexity in war and conflict and what that actually means to a junior commander and their role on the ground. Could you share with us some of those stories? Yeah. Um, 
we there's a range of problems going from uh, structurally complex to interactively complex. Structurally complex is um, a transmission. Guys like this because you put it together, you take it apart. It always works the same way. If you screw it up, you just take it apart. It's not mad at you. Doesn't get upset. You, You eventually get it to work, and it's predictable. Interactive relationship is your marriage or your relationship with your teenage kids, and you can't predict that. You have no idea where that's going. The same thing that worked the same way last time could get an explosion this time. You don't even know if you're the source of the explosion or not. Well, that's what what operating is like. It's interaction between people, and uh, the more diverse people, the more likely you are to get an explosion. So you've got to think of it in a different way. There's a manual, and I've never recommended an Army pub, but this is a good one, 525-5-500. If you Google just that, put in quotes, 525-5-500. It works. I've done it. It pops up as Commander's Appreciation Campaign Design. Read pages 4 to 12. That's all you need. It's a cliff notes on wicked problems. It describes, I think they count 11 characteristics of wicked problems. The original article had 10. The Army has to do one better, so it has 11. Other versions have four, but essentially it's the same type of thing. Um, we tend to think of problems in planning when we do our planning as a mechanical process. Like in Iraq, when we didn't know if we had uh, the insurgency started in 2004, 2003, there was an argument, was this a real insurgency? Was it just a Shia insurgency or Sunni insurgency or was it dead-enders? Um, the conversation ended because the Secretary of Defense said it was dead-enders and we went off pursuing that problem. Uh, so we made the 55 deck of cards and we started rounding up Sunni and Shia leaders. And the real problem was actually an insurgency, and so we made it worse. So unlike a transmission where if I screw this up, I just take it apart and I go back to the beginning, we didn't. We'd made the insurgency worse. This is the thing we very often don't get. You don't go back and reimmerse yourself into the problem because we now, in the U.S. Army and someone in the Marine Corps, we're trying to use design at the front end to really understand the problem you're going to deal with. And then you pick a solution you launch off. And usually the commander's in charge and he picks the solution and therefore we all understand it. Yes. But you need to have, the commander needs to have the gut say, you know, I could well be wrong on this. Mm. And therefore, in our argument, these are other framings of the problem. I'm going to keep a small planning cell, and maybe in a in a company, maybe just your XO's tap to keep track of these two possibilities. Or maybe a really sharp sergeant. You've got a sharp sergeant in your headquarters and say, I want you to be watching this and see if maybe my analysis was wrong. Now, in a in a flat-up conventional fight, it, you're not going to have that so much. It's going to be much more of a transmission problem. But in a insurgency fight, all your folks who have been to Afghanistan understand this, that what you thought was a pretty easy problem and you thought you understood it, you know, there's water at the bottom of the hill, the people live at the top of the hill, let's put a well at the top of the hill, and now every woman in the county's mad at you, you don't know why. Because the only time they got away from their husbands to have a conversation was walking to the bottom of the hill. For 10 minutes each day, they had some freedom in their life, and you took it away. So what you thought was a good thing blew up on you, and you didn't know why. Because now they're mad all the time, so their husbands are mad, and so they want a piece of you. Mm. Okay, that's not something they trained you for. No. But that's, you do this all the time in your life. Yes. You come home and your spouse is upset and clearly angry, and you say, hmm, I could ignore this. If you've been married more than a year, you know that's a really bad plan. <laughs> or you then start open-ended questions trying to find out what the problem is, and you're pretty relieved to find out it's not you. It's something happened at work. And so being a guy, I, and you start reading the paper, and she's talking about it, and um, 
you agreed when you should have disagreed or the other way around. And suddenly you are the problem. <laughs> so you've changed the problem again. And it's back and forth like this, but that's real life. We do this all the time in our own lives. We understand all ten concepts in our own lives, but we don't apply it to our military thinking yes. and planning. We've got to start doing that. Yes, because interacting with the problem, obviously, then changes has these the effects, changes the problem. And you can never go back. It's a one-time right. shot. If you try something and it doesn't work, you've got in-laws who are fighting and say, you know, maybe if I hint to them that this time we don't want them here for Thanksgiving, I'll get a Thanksgiving off, and instead you've started a lifelong war. And you can't go back. I didn't mean to say that yes. because they don't forget. Yes. So all of these things are, are a natural part of life. And the military planning process is designed to tame them, in other words, eliminate them. And that works okay in conventional conflicts. It's a really disaster in an unconventional conflict, which, again, I think the heart of what we're going to be doing is that. Yes. And primarily it's going to be even tougher because I hope we are now smart enough to never try direct counterinsurgency ourselves, direct and large. You have to go indirect and advise and assist. It's small. So your job is going to be harder than ever you're going to be advising a culture you don't begin to understand. Mm. And it's going to be constantly trying to sense and evaluate the situation, reevaluate. In your life, you do this constantly. You're always reevaluating. Yes. And from conversation to conversation, when it's over here, I wonder if that changed my relationship with so and so or what I did here. Uh, frankly, this is a very sexist thing to say, but women are more conscious of relationships as a general rule than men are and will spend more time agonizing over that, which is probably a very positive tendency of this kind of conflict because you really have to think through what did I do there, what, what changed, what didn't change, what am I missing. Yes. Um, and that's what that's the life you're going to have to get used to. I'm going to get a good worry out of you at the end, um, but before we get on to that question, do you have any advice that you would, final advice that you'd give to junior commanders? What you've got to do is you, you start prepping today and you read and read widely, um, particularly at the junior officer level. Uh, there are, there are many more good books of junior officers now. Read those, but also try to find anything you can from the other side, uh, the other side of the mountain. You know, the bear went over the mountain, the other yes. side of the mountain. Those types of uh, uh, narratives. Uh, narratives of resistance leaders from whatever period give you an idea of how they think differently. We were advising a group of insurgents who were operating in Kabul in 1987. At the time... Cod had 20,000 agents in Kabul. There were two full Russian divisions, three full Afghan divisions, and these guys were operating in the city. And they'd come out, they'd exfilled, and we were doing some training for them, and uh, we said, how do you move around the city? And they said, well, we use Russian military vehicles. We knew they were doing house-to-house -house searches. I said, how do you, where do you hide them? I'm thinking underground garages, some, I said, we signed them out of the motor pool. And I thought, my God, it suddenly hit me. They think completely differently than we do. Yeah. The solution is a vehicle, hiding it, leave it in the motor pool, corrupt one motor sergeant. Yeah. Then it comes out with the right, they had color-coded tags that indicated it was the right day. Mm. It comes out with the right tags. It suddenly hit me, and of course you get the uniforms from the laundry lady. Mm. She's doing the laundry. If you get it dirty, she just says, okay, sorry, it'll be a day late. We've lost it. And nobody is surprised when they lose your laundry for a day. No. If it's full of bullet holes, you just bury the uniform, and she just says she lost it, and they pay back. Mm. Uh, they did all of that, and that's how they succeeded in operating. Now, after they set a bomb, I said, what do you do after you set the bomb? He says, we joined the security perimeter. 
close. Nobody looks for the bad guy in the That's security right. room. Bomb goes off. You're one of the first arriving units. You set your bomb. You're driven away. Bomb goes off. You, you immediately get in the security perimeter, establish it. You don't go anywhere until a Russian officer tells you you can. Mm. Very clever. Yeah. And so you, th- you begin to realize these people just think of things very, mm. very differently. And uh, I thought that is what you've got to be doing reading. Now, beyond doing the military reading, and I'm a big fan of military history, You've also got to look at things. I wrote a piece, I think back in 2009, for um, Armed Forces Journal on thinking differently. And it was things like thinking about complexity, uh, thinking about wicked problems, black swans. There's a lot of good literature out there that says how the world is changing and rates of change problems. Um, Singularity is a big fat book. It's bad for Marines. It's a really fat book. In the first 100 pages is all the good stuff. Yes. And it's all about rate of change. And he yes. makes a very convincing argument that all rate of change is exponential. Yes. And I think that if you get your head around that idea, mm. you're vastly ahead of your peers. If yes. you just get a, don't think linear, think exponential, and think laterally, uh, because, again, it's, it's things like um, somebody took something from skiing, from farming, and from motorcycles and created a whole new industry, the snowmobile. Yes. Now, nobody put those things together. The guy put them together, and he created a multibillion-dollar industry. Mm-hmm. It's that kind of thing. If you take an explosively formed projectile, which is light but devastating, and put it on one of these quadcopters, which college students are already using to fly all over campus. They've delivered pizzas. They've yes. Delivered <laughs> if you instead deliver an EFP, mm-hmm. what's the impact? And start thinking that through. How would you do it if you were a kid in Kabul or Baghdad. See, in fact, I'm amazed that we can still operate out of uh, Bagram Airfield. Yes. So I think we'll see more of that. And it, the key is the preparation there. If you've done a preparation on that, if you realize from the time you take over command, you don't know if you're going next week or you'll do your two years and not go anywhere, you've got to assume it's next week. And so you immediately start the TDGs. You immediately start getting to know your people. Again, Oftentimes, we'll spend all our time trying to get a handle on the material readiness mm. with lots of inspections on material readiness. That's necessary, but every inspection of material readiness is really an excuse to get to know the people who are taking care of that material. Try to understand them, particularly your key leaders. You'll start with your platoon leaders and platoon sergeants uh, and your NCOs, your supply NCO, your, your uh you have color sergeants? Not anymore, no. Do you have first sergeants then? Or? No, we've just got sergeants these days. We used to have staff sergeants, um, but we've just gone to the single rank. But you've got a single, you've got a senior enlisted guy in your company, right? Yeah, there's, uh, so there's a company sergeant major who's okay. a warrant officer class two, and then there's a sergeant <coughs> right to the platoon. Okay, yeah, those are, the, those are the people you've got to know. Yes. And you've got to really build a relationship with them. Um, and that's, again, that's dinner, it's beer, it's sitting around having coffee. So if we can get on to a good worry, if you've got <laughs> one to share. I've had some doozies in previous podcasts. Um, some embarrassing moments have been shared. But what's a good worry that you'd like to share with junior commanders? This is going to be a little hard to do because it needs a visual. Um, <laughs> the thing that probably saved my life in Somalia, we were out. I was with one other Marine, and we were with two UN vehicles going around to find food sites. Well, they went racing through this gate that was too small for my Humvee. Mm. The gate slams, and they're all up on the walls, but we're stuck outside, mm. two of us. 
and obviously a crowd forms. The kids are there. And if then I see in the distance at the back of the crowd people showing up with rifles. Now, theoretically, they couldn't have rifles, but with two of us, I didn't think I was in a position to try to enforce this regulation. Yes. But the mom started to pick up the kids, and I realized I was going to be in trouble, so I did this. I got down on the ground and did that, yep. and I got the kids for it. It's just a, it's a hand trick where you, yes. it's not the steeple, it's the one where you reverse your hand. Almost like and, a wiggles move for okay. the Australians. And the kids were fascinated, so they all came crowding forward. As soon as that happened, the mothers moved to get between their kids and the guys with the guns, and mm -hmm. so we kept it at a peaceful level. I did that, and then I did some juggling. Uh, instead of doing exams, one time I was learning how to juggle. My yes. roommate taught me to juggle, so I was juggling some rocks. I turned to my driver and I said, you're up next. I said, I'm out of tricks. <laughs> and you're on next. And his eyes got huge. <laughs> Fortunately, the UN came out and we, we threw our hands in the air, got in the vehicle and drove away. Yeah. But it's that. It's, it's uh, what will happen will be totally out of your experience. Mm. And you've got to analyze the situation and then just say, okay, what gets me out of this? And the only thing you can do is keep people here so violence doesn't break out. Because yes. at this point, they weren't shooting in crowds much. Uh, and so that was probably not what you think, Marina, what's the closest you've no, come that's, to getting killed. That's well, thinking on your feet and, and showing that whatever you're armed with in terms of your toolbox of leadership and military skills, uh, you may need to think outside that box when you're actually presented yep. with a situation and you think through what you actually, what the best outcome is for you and then what the way is to achieve that and whether you can actually do that. So Because when you look at it, there was no good outcome that involved firearm. No. Uh, even if we had shot very well and the Somalis were notoriously bad shots, we could have dropped some, but the high probability they would have hit a child. Mm. And then we've got an instant where Marines have a firefight and there's dead kids in the street and this just goes bad. And so it was one of those cases where you go in with a mindset that, you know, weapons aren't the right solution right now. Uh, but like Mattis says, uh, be polite, be professional, have a plan to kill everybody you meet. That's not a bad rule, but yes. keep in mind that that's number three. Yes. And you've got to think through, how do I avoid going to number three? Absolutely. In an insurgency-type game. Yes. Well, that's a wonderful way, I think, to end this podcast. Uh, for those of you who haven't visited the National Defence University, it's a beautiful location. Today it's a bit dark and gloomy outside, so I don't think that I'll be doing another walk around <laughs> by the time I go. I'll be beating the rain, I think, back to the metro today. But thank you so much. Uh, I have learnt so much from those stories, and I certainly hope that now we can share them with a whole range of junior commanders back in Australia. So thank you very much. My pleasure. Thanks a lot.